0: Welcome to episode 204 of the Brighton Rock podcast, which is the second part of the conversation that we have with Dick Knight. We celebrated our 200th episode with the first part of that conversation. Now, a couple of weeks on, we're releasing the second part of it. Now, in this episode, Dick is talking about, sorry, about the swearing um, Bill Archer. He's talking about David Davis and the FA, about Martin Perry, pricing control of the club, the Crawley proposal, Fan power, Archer's affiliation being revealed, Fans United and Hereford, Dreams of a Brave New Future, an outrageous EFL bond requirement, um, players such as Jeff Minton, Gary Hart and Rod Thomas from the Gilliam days, and indeed manager Brian Horton. And he talks about the general importance of connecting with fans. So here we go then with this second part, Peter and I in discussion with the legend and club president, Dick Knight. What was the the actual trigger point in the end to to surprise that control away, to get those horrible fingers off our club? Um, Those sticky
2: fingers. The
0: sticky fingers, fingers, yeah.
2: Yeah, um, (laughs) Well, it was really the mediation process which the FA Commission in the... David Davies who uh, had been the only one at the FA to Tell Graham Kelly, who is the chief executive, who's only interested in posing on the steps of this hotel or that, or Wembley, (laughs) talking about England. Um, And he said to Graham Kelly, this is a big issue in football because it's going to happen more and more. You know, that we've got to make a stand. We've got to help Brighton because this guy, if we don't act, we've got to get this guy's control of the club away. Dick Knight has got the fans behind him and, you know, we need to have, because Archer was so duplicitous, you know, he, he wouldn't, he'd say he would let us look at the books and then he'd not allow it. You know, it was, it was unbelievable, uh, the, the frustration. Um, and David, because I'd met him early, he came to, uh, meet, have a, he, he met with the fans at the um, what's the club on the seafront? You know, oh, um, uh, the
0: uh, a, a Concord. Is it the Concord? The Concord, yeah. Yeah. He came
2: there, and, and he, you know, he was brave enough to come there because he thought the fans would be against him because he represented the FA. And I said, "Then they are not. They won't be against you." Providing you show that you were prepared to try and do something about the situation to help, you know, to unlog the, you know, the logjam. Un- because the logjam yes. is because of the ineptitude of, of your uh, bosses at the FA or well, your colleagues at the FA, in particular, the chief executive um, and the football league. They're both sitting on their hands because they're scared, you know, that Archer will do something like... Um, Alan Sugar did, and um, so David heard all that, and he thought that Graham Kelly's response was pathetic. You know, um, Graham Kelly wasn't. I mean, Graham Kelly came to a couple of meetings that they held, the FA held in London, where I sat with Liam Brady, you know, and Bob Pinnock. On one, we were sat. It was like a, it was like a uh, court martial. You know, the FA FAP <laughs> was sitting up at the top on this raised pedestal, you know, on the yeah. platform. We were down one side and Archer was down the other side. And, you know, we were up in front of the beak, so to speak, you know, and Archer and uh, he wouldn't even allow Bellotti to be there. He was so bloody incompetent, Bellotti. It was just Archer and Ray Bloom was there representing the club right Hmm. because he was the only director that stayed on when Archer got control of the club so anyway the point is Hmm. Ray and Archer were one side and there were the other Graham Kelly opened the meeting at 10.30 in the morning after about five minutes he said right I'm going to leave you guys to it Uh, I'm very busy I've got to and he, he left the whole meeting which went on until the afternoon and he came back a few minutes before the end of the meeting and then went and did all the press that David Davis and his colleagues at the FA had actually run the meeting and, you know, they could see in that meeting just how devious Archer was. You know, they could see that this guy was Hmm. you know, he was he was clinging on despite, you know, being not, he was unpopular for all the wrong reasons because he was you know, not because he was, uh, he was unfairly unpopular. He, the things he did were all against the club. It was only in his favour, you know, to give him control of the club in the first place. Anyway, David, um, said to the FA, we have got to, he talked to me and said, because I'd mentioned arbitration, which I'd been involved in a couple of times in business. Um, and he thought about it. And then he uh, he he did some inquiries about mediation himself and he thought it would be a, a very good way to go. He put this to the FA board um, and he said, we, of course, have got to pay for it because, you know, we need to we need to it, this can't remain. This it's it's a blog jam and it's an issue for it's it's a parable of modern football. It's going to happen more and more that business people are coming into football and not interested in the team. They're interested in the team's assets. And in Brighton's case, it's their ground in a very high uh, value piece of real estate in Hove, you know, and mm-hmm. um, to hell with what happens to the team. And it was that was what did it, the, the mediation. He mm-hmm. He again started Archer. Each one of us was given a mediator. I had one guy, he had the other guy, two mediators. These two mediators j- had just come up. Can you believe this? A mediation in uh, Palestine, in the, you know, what's it, the Sinai Valley, hmm. in Palestine, over <laughs> a land dispute. Yeah, that's, they were very highly experienced. Uh, in the Sinai Peninsula, that's where they've been on this very high profile land dispute. And then they came to do Brighton. <laughs> it was like incredible, really. Nothing, that has never happened in football before or since, um, in terms of that's how we un, un, un freed up the logjam. Uh, they went to 49.5% shares for me 49.5% for Archer and 1% for Martin Perry who ostensibly was neutral because he worked for McAlpine Hmm. you know Archer obviously thought he could get Martin you know Archer was eventually prepared to do that although he was kicking and screaming all the way you know eventually agreeing it uh, but he thought he could persuade Martin, you know, to vote with him on any any contentious issues. And uh, so he eventually went along with it, you know, 49 and a half, 49 and a half. Ah, uh, yeah. But the key thing is that he no longer had control, you know. Yeah.
0: And then and Martin Perry, I mean, he's, he's described himself as an Albion fan. Was he an Albion fan back then? Because that would have been brilliant Just- had gone under the radar.
2: I think he'd, um, well, I know that he had, was, had been at school in Brighton. And yeah. he he got on in my good books for a number of reasons. But one of them was, he said, I used to like Mike Tiddy, right? Now, Mike Tiddy was a right winger for the Albion. So Martin was absolutely right. You know, Mike Tiddy, he was a Cornishman. And you don't get many Cornishmen playing league football. Um, But he also had this white stripe down the middle of his hair, of his hair. It, it, It wasn't, it wasn't a dye. It was natural. You know, he just had this white stripe. His hair was dark except for this white streak down the middle of his hair. So he was known as, you know, not flash. Gordon, because we had a flash Gordon later after Mike Tiddy, or maybe I think he was before Mike Tiddy, but he played in the same position, right wing. But Mike Tiddy came from the Arsenal, which obviously endeared him to a lot of people, because he he played for Arsenal in the first division. And Martin, you know, came up with his name as saying that I used to like Mike Tiddy. So I... You know, accepted that Martin was an Albion fan, and he he knew something about it, but he wasn't really. A, he's he's now a, you know he's been an Albion a, a football fan for since he got together with me. You know, um, he certainly you wouldn't say wasn't an Albion fan now, but he but, did. Uh, he was at school in Brighton, or he lived in Brighton, and he, uh, you know, he 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 knew my titty, and he knew one or two other, but the one that he I. I was interested in him was he knew this player, so he was a uh, yeah he 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 had connections with the album,
0: yeah, and then of course the rest followed from there, and that's been well documented in other stuff we then won 't need to sort of say too much about that because I think uh, the rest um we we sort of know, but um if you do want to add any impart any further bits of info in uh, please do but I, obviously once you 've got control what what just to clarify as well, this date by this point was this was in 96, wasn't it? I'm trying to remember now. No, it was, it, no, it was, 19-
2: uh, April 97. That was oh, when, yeah. on the yeah. Thursday before the game against Doncaster at home, on the Saturday, we made this announcement from this mediation centre in London. Uh, the mediators and David Davis made the announcement that the club had, you know, we'd come to an agreement, Archer and myself and that i was chairman in waiting right yeah uh, because he was still going to be part of it he was going to be a director because he you know he he wouldn't let go completely his pride would not allow him to let go completely so but the point is as i said we we got him control away from him and that was the key thing um but what happened is so There was this game, I mean, it it was the timing. We were desperate to get some sort of conclusion, you know, before the very end of the season. Uh, Because who knows, if we'd actually gone through to past the end of the season and we'd been relegated, you don't know what the outcome of that negotiation might have been. He may have dug his heels in even more for a lot. You know, we had to get it done in order to be able to announce it, you know, by that last game, ideally. So we could lift the spirits of the fans who'd been through hell, you know, for two or three years as the team sunk lower and lower. And it was you know, the crass mismanagement of the club. Um. So, but what happened? So there was this announcement in London Uh. Archer was at this press conference but never said anything. Uh, I was obviously interviewed a lot uh, by various media and so on. And so, ostensibly, there I was. We came to the Goldstone on the Saturday. Uh, this is going you know, this guy's the new chairman. I'd never been in the West Stand before except for once, right? When England played a, a I think it was the England B team or England under 23s played a, a, a international and Peter Ward scored a hat trick in this game. I think it was against Switzerland and England won 6-0. This is when we were in division three, you know, and he, he scored a hat trick. Peter Ward at that time was the best striker in England at any level and he should have walked into the England first team and he didn't, but he played in that game and he scored a hat-trick. Um, and people, you know, they didn't believe he could do it at the top level, but he, he could, because he he scored these three goals. Anyway, I was invited as a guest to that game, um, and I sat in the West End. That was the only time prior to the Doncaster match that I had actually sat in the West End, right? Um, and so it was all new to me, except that, obviously, I knew I knew where it it was. I went into this, into this run-down, ramshackle uh, building, you know, which is the West End. And I went into this run-down, ramshackle boardroom with the paint peeling off the walls. It was truly pathetic, you know. Hmm. There was no uh, cabinet with any trophies in it. There was nothing. There was a faded. List of international players that had played for the Albion uh, that had long since been updated. You know, it was it was like looking at a ghost town, the remnants of a ghost club, um, and that's effectively what it was really, because it had been allowed to run down and run down so much. Everyone, you know, was demoralised because they the people running it made them feel demoralised and. Uh, you know, I I realised just what a task I had on my hands. But on the other hand, um, there it was. We won that game. Uh, I said, you know, I'm the only league chairman ever to have a hundred percent win record. So I was ginning people up, you know, and make and we go to Harewood and. Um, you know the importance of that game cannot be underestimated by any fan who goes to the Amex today. Is if we had got relegated, I pledged uh, that I would, that I would, you know, become chairman officially, mm. and I would bring the club back to the football league. But my God, it would have been difficult, you know, because we would face even more problems uh, if we'd gone down. However. You know, uh, if we had gone down, I know that I would have got the club back to the league. You know, because we... The following of the club has always been there. It's always been a potentially big following. Partly because of our... Well, it's mainly to do with our captain area. You know, people are not just Albion fans from Brighton and Hove. are they're Albion fans. Well, you guys live in London. But I mean, what I'm saying is, you know... People originate as Albion fans if they live in Haywood, Heath, Worthing, Eastbourne, you name it. You know, hmm. the only place they don't is probably Chichester, where there's probably more Portsmouth fans in Trichester. Um, yeah. Or certainly going that direction, it becomes more Portsmouth territory. And, of course, Crawley is really the South London club's territory, more than the Albion um, because of the, you know, Crawley Newtown after the Second World War, people came out from South London. So a lot of Crystal Palace, uh, Millwall, you know, West Ham Charlton fans came down to that area of, of Crawley. Yeah. But yeah. so the Albion has never had a big following in Crawley, although I did try and take us to Crawley rather than have to go to Chillingham. But that was another, you know, appalling, yeah decision by the Football League to stop that. And, and you
0: said Millwall as well,
2: I think, the new you? was yeah. another option. Yeah, well the one that I, uh, because the, the obvious for me, the obvious for, for me was Crawley who just got this new stadium uh, you know, which held 4,000 and it was not big enough, but it was it had the potential. So we could have built it up to 10,000 which at our cost, you know, so people, Albion fans could just drive 25 miles up the road to Crawley. They would have got a football league standard ground. Um, and it was so much more the best, most obvious thing to do. But unfortunately, politics got in the way because um, Crawley was old labour, very much old labour run by old labour people. Um, and as far as they were concerned, Brighton was very much new labour and near the twain should meet. They didn't like the idea of Brighton and Hove Albion coming to their ground, although Brighton and Hove Albion were prepared to basically give them a high quality ground at no cost to them. And the club itself, the interesting thing is because Crawley Council, and probably still do, owns the ground uh Crawley Town obviously were delighted with the idea. A, they'd probably benefit in terms of getting, you know, a few lone players from, from us, but also they'd have a Football League quality stadium. And of course, look what they did brilliantly and got themselves into the league, um, but they still don't have as big a stadium mm-hmm. as they could have done if we'd been allowed to go there in 1997. You know, it'd I mean, be so it's, much
0: better fit, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, so much yeah. more obvious. A lot of aggravation. We would have been helping a local Sussex team uh, yeah. and helping ourselves and helping the fans, helping the economy of Crawley rather than helping the economy of Gillingham, you know. Yeah,
0: exactly, yeah. And, I mean, you you've talked earlier about um, whether I was around at that time. Actually, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm 79 vintage, Peter's uh, 90 vintage iron in terms of first years of support. But I actually wasn't around much in the nineties. I was, um, away with uni. I was working on Saturdays. Even when I wasn't at university, I had jobs involving Saturdays. so I couldn't really get to games very often. So unfortunately, although I was following things and doing what I could here and there and getting to the occasional game, um, I didn't really get along to much much but um, but what's one of my biggest regrets is not going to the Fans United day, which of course we're celebrating the twenty fifth anniversary of this very day. Um, I mean how, the genesis of that and how that came about and, and what a magnificent day that must have been. Um, I can only I can only gauge it from the pictures really and the, the footage I've seen. Um, quite a phenomenal event really in the history of football in general.
2: Yes. It was unique, and it was it was really showed fans for what they really are. They are the yeah, sort yeah. of the of the game, salt and pepper and earth of the game, the blood, you know, the, the the bloodstream of the game. Without fans, the game is nothing. And of course, that was demonstrated most recently in a dramatic way by the European Super League being. Yeah ultimately, it was the fans that stopped that happening. Uh, And I'm not saying that the reason why, I mean, there there was a lot of fan, um, you know, activity that was bordering on, you know, sort of uh, violent. But the fact is that the fans, you know, knew that uh, they were being taken, you know, for a ride in a sense they were being they would be asked to fork up even more money for you know for probably less games although no they would they would have more games but you know the, the whole structure of football would be torn apart and you know the fans are so important in every club you know it's without the fans I mean we're talking about um, top level of football if the, pr- the professional level but look at you know, clubs much lower down the pyramid, you know, you go and watch Burgess Hill or, or, you know, all the local Sussex teams, they've all got fans who support them. They, you know, week in, week out. And, you know, it's that like those people who've become committee members, you know, club members, programme sellers, whatever, they all help the club and that's what they enjoy it. It's something, you know, it's a hobby in a way, and it becomes a passion. It may start as a hobby, but it becomes a passion. Yeah. And you know, for me, I think you know why I was able to persuade the Albion fans is because I proved very early that I was one of them. I was an Albion fan. I was. I had the uh, wherewithal to do something about it financially because without that, we wouldn't have had a. We wouldn't have a club today. it's just protesting is not enough. You know, you have to have some, be able to wield some real power. And at the end of the day, Archer had to back down because I said to him, you have to match, you know, you're owed a lot of money by this club and you're not taking it out of this club. You're going to invest it in this club. And the amount that the club owes you, I'm going to put that amount in as well. And then I'm going to put more in. And you're going to have to match me all the way. Otherwise, you're out, (laughs) right? And that was what did it. He he paid lip service to the fans, in a sense. He would see them and he'd say, yes, I'm, you know, I know what you're feeling. He's a bullshitter. Forgive my language, but, you know, he was a, he was a, a bullshitter, and uh, he still is. If he's still alive, I'm, I'm not sure. I think he is still alive, but um, mm. and he, guess what? He's a Manchester United fan, <laughs> well, or oh, they dear. say he is, but whether he's a real football fan or not, yeah. I don't know. Um, anyway, he always had a you know, if he had a club at all, it wasn't Brighton, it was Manchester United, yeah. um, and he must be. I mean, I must admit, after, here's a lovely story for you, right. Uh, we went to um one of the first years in the premiership you know <clears throat> we played at, at old Trafford and a very good friend um of i didn't go in the boardroom because a very good friend of um my daughters uh, she's is a lady who's a judge, and her and her family are genuine united fans through and through back to the 30s, you know, and this lady was one of the first judges in Manchester, in Lancashire, so she's, she's only in her 40s, you know, anyway, she invited, she has a, a box at Old Trafford, and she invited me, and, and my, uh, my daughter lives in America, so she wasn't there, but she invited me, my son, and my two grandsons who live here in England, Um, to this game. So we, with, we go into the lounge there and have some nice hospitality, but, you know, we wanted to get out and sit in the, overlooking the ground. And it was a very top, high, uh, tiered, uh, position on the corner of one of the corners of the ground and unbelievable view down. And immediately, uh, so, and Vicky, Victoria, the woman who's the judge, was sitting there, and I'm sitting. And there's this guy sitting here, so he, he introduced himself to me, and, and I and, and, and Vicky said he's actually the president of Brighton, you know. So he said, this guy said, oh, he said, do you know my one of my friends, one of my best friends, Bill Archer. <laughs> <laughs> So at this point, Vicky went, oh, she knew the story, you know, and I, I t- took him and I said, yes, how is Bill these days? <laughs> and, I, and I said, uh, he may be your friend, but he will never ever be my friend. And because he said he's got a, he's got a box here, just there, but he doesn't seem to be here today. And, of course, it was because they <laughs> were playing Brighton. That's why he wasn't yeah. there. Yeah,
1: if any, any Brighton fans saw him walking up or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, yeah. The, the yeah, fact I that I was sitting
2: right by the box he has was a complete fluke, obviously. But this guy, oh, you must know my, do you know my one of my best friends, Bill Archer? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: That's beautiful. It's you send the regards,
1: Dick. Did you go, like, send him my regards?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, um, Vic, 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 Vicky, you know, Victoria, this judge lady, said, she said to him afterwards, you know, I don't know how Dick contained himself, because he was very polite to you, uh, but he had so many wrangles with that guy, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, he doesn't like him at all, because he nearly destroyed this team that's playing there. You know, there we were at Old Trafford playing in a league match. And if it was for our, Ar- if Archer had stayed there, we never would never have been doing that, would we? No. Well, we wouldn't have had a club at all because he would have just run it down. Yeah, you know?
0: Exactly. Exactly. But, but no, were- I mean, sorry, go on, Peter. Yeah. I was going to say was
1: that, yeah, I mean, we were saying about the Fans United and that sort of thing. So I think it, it considering what, you know, football fans were talked about in the 80s and early 90s, the idea that fans from so many different clubs, and I was there that day, and it was, it was just incredible that, you know, fans coming from Germany, from across Europe, from clubs all over the country, most, pretty much every club, I think, was probably represented by some fan somewhere. And it was, you know, the idea that all these people who, for, you know, over the last decade, a lot of people have been fighting for different clubs, but they would come together, you know, West Ham and Millwall, you know, Man, you
2: know, that sort is, of thing, would all come together like that, it was, it was incredible. One of the things I remember, I don't know if you remember this picture, guys, but, I remember this picture of these three fans walking along Oldham Road, you know, by the North stand, yeah. and yeah. they all had their arms round each other, and they all had big scarves and shirts. There was a Newcastle fan, a Sunderland fan, and a Middlesbrough fan, Brilliant. and they were all together and they were all arm in arm, and that says it all about fans, doesn't yeah. it? You know, brilliant, absolutely yeah. brilliant. I never really forget does. that picture.
0: And of course Albion fans have, have got involved in other Fans United days. And I remember there's one at Wrexham, there's AFC Wimbledon, Cambridge, all over the place has been awesome. Yeah, the Doncaster other days. one,
1: uh, at Gillingham the first year was made one for Doncaster because they were going through some tough. Yeah. Yeah. Our home game against them was, was made into a... Yeah, a, I think that game... quite matched good. that, has it? Since that first one, it's never quite matched the, the number of different fans and the number of different people there. No, it was, it was a,
2: a relatively, uh, pale, um you know, sort of uh, version of that original one. But I think partly that was because, it, not the attendance, which was uh, pretty good, but it wasn't as much as that first one. But also, if I remember rightly, that was about the worst football match I've ever watched. It was nil-nil, <laughs> and both teams were lucky to get nil. I mean, it was just abysmally bad. It's the sort
1: of game you'd expect from two teams who got thirty, thirty, what, thirty-four and twenty points in a season.
2: Yeah, I mean mean, it was just awful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the joys! I remember thinking, "Thank God that's over." You know, it was. It can't get any worse than this. And then, obviously. Um,
0: Again, I missed the Hereford game as well, but uh, obviously that, that day in particular was something momentous. And we've got a friend of the show, Nick, Nick Ansley, who lives actually, funny enough, you mentioned Manchester. He lives up in the greater Manchester area. And he's um, asked to ask you a question, which is to say, how did he feel on the morning of the Hereford game, having just secured control of the Albion out of the frying pan into the fire?
2: Question <laughs> mark. Um, no, because I fully expected, you know, we'd already come through one Big hurdle over one big hurdle, which is winning the game, the previous Saturday against Doncaster, which is of course, in a sense, more crucial because if we had only drawn that game or were still lost it, the the game at Hereford would have been meaningless, you know, unless we actually won at Hereford, and we didn't. In what was key that we is we only needed to draw that game, um, at Hereford rather than win it. Um but I mean yeah there was incredible trepidation on my part because I thought, you know, running a football club can't be as tense as this all the time. But I'm used to tension. You know, I'm I've worked in the ad business, which is a pretty high octane business at the top level. Um and I'm used to I can take pressure and tension, but it was Going into uncharted territory in terms of, you know, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I love that club, you know, this club. But the club has personified by the team that's out there. He's just not very good. You know, I can understand me wanting to do this for Mark Lawrenson and Peter Ward and no or Johnny McNichol, all those stars of my youth and younger days, Um But I knew I've just got to get this team back to being somewhere near a great team. You know, it's not just surviving. We have to grow this club and go. we have to get to the Premier League. And that's why, even then, I knew that's what we had to do, what I had to do. I had to get the club in a position to challenge. And part of that was getting a stadium. You know, I was starting work on getting the stadium before I took over the club. This is why I had Martin Perry in there, because I wanted Martin, you know, to tell me what was possible and what wasn't possible in terms of the stadium. But it was no, that know-how of, of mm-hmm. that, you know, of knowing. And he just had that experience of being involved in building the Huddersfield Stadium. Um, and so he he and I were a perfect fit, you know. To you know, it was my vision and my drive about what I wanted and how I thought the club. I knew the club had the potential to easily, you know, fill a thirty thousand plus stadium, you know, and indeed a forty thousand stadium. What I knew was that we would never get planning permission for a forty thousand stadium because. People, the council would say, why on earth do you need a 40,000 stadium? You only play in front of 4,000 people, 5,000 people. So the plan was, you know, the pl- even planning for the first, you know, the planning application went in for 23,000. And even then the council officers, the planning officers, were saying, why do you need a stadium big?" And I produced all this evidence that, you know, going back, because I was able to put my hands on it very easily, all the crowds, you know, that I've been in, 30,000 crowds, uh, the biggest ever crowd, which is still going to be the biggest ever crowd in Brighton, which was at the Goldstone Ground against Fulham, Boxing Day 1956, in in what is now the Championship. You know, we mm. were in the, we were in the, uh, not 56, yeah. Uh, some, was
0: that- so no,
2: it it would have been it was it was Boxing Day sixty sixty maybe oh, okay. um, 36,000 were in the Goldstone Ground. We played Fulham. That was we played Fulham the day before. In those days, you used to play reverse fixtures, Christmas Day and Boxing Day. You know, so the teams used to travel. Oh, blimey! <laughs> yeah, so we had Loss, lost. We had lost at Fulham. Um, I think you know quite easily, and then we beat Fulham three nil, and they had the England captain play for them, Johnny Haynes, who was a wonderful player. But you know that day, the Brighton crowd you know, basically won the game for the Albion. It was, I mean, it was a terrific game, but there was 36,000. And I'd been in crowds, you know, of 31,000, 32,000 uh, when we are in, in League 4. Incredible That's crowds. amazing to
1: me, because when I started watching, the, the capacity had dropped so much. So yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the time I was watching from, say, the last like, eight, not seven years of the Goldstone, we had like half the East Stand was shut for most of it and yeah. I think one game in the Cup against Crawley we got 18,000 in my time and that was by far the highest crowd. Even,
2: even, uh, yeah, obviously in the last year at the Goldstone we got some 10,000 but
1: nothing close to 36.
2: I think, I think, no, obviously not anywhere near 36, but I think, um, the, uh, that game against, you know, the Fans United game, that was 11,000 I think, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and then we, yeah, bit of our so home that. form really picked up and, We are starting to get
2: behind something. I think the crowds up quite a bit that second half of the season, didn't they? And they got. Once the fans realised the club was going out of the league and what that might mean for this club, they began to rally around the club. And I think that's what, you know, what was interesting about that was we started winning our home matches, but we still weren't getting any points away from home. You know. We got one win all season,
1: didn't we? I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah,
2: we, we, we we kept losing away matches which is why the way game at Hereford you know was such a nail-biter because, because there was no track record of us you know picking up points on our travels we, we were points. dreadful
1: in the first half I mean I, I was lucky enough to be there and that yeah the first half I thought we were pretty awful and then second half we played pretty well got level and that last half hour I can honestly say it's the longest half hour of my life it's just
2: never seemed well, to my- That goal made a wonder save down near the, at the foot of the post. He got his hand on a shot that was going in and he saved it. And that was as valuable as Robbie Reinelt scoring. Yeah. But I I... remember the guy went through late on the the last minute and
1: and tried to chip it over Ormrod as well. And he he just, he just held it in his hands. Yeah. 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 In an alternate universe, he chipped it a little higher and that goes in and all complete.
2: Look where Hereford are now and look where we are now. Well, Hereford, um, they have, they did come back to the football yeah. league, didn't they? But only after about eight years.
1: Yeah, because we played them in League One, I think, at 15, didn't we, at one point? Yeah. And they, they did come back. dropped back down a lot again since then. Bang. But then
2: they, I think they're back down in non-league again. Yeah, conference and or National League North, back. I think, yeah. Yeah, we would have come back because I would have made sure we came back. But. It would have been. I mean, I can't. You know, all I'm saying is I made a pledge that I would say I was not going to fight Archer all that time. You know, two years and then walk away from the club just because it got relegated when it was odds on to be relegated anyway. Hmm. Um, all that time when I was fighting Archer, you know, we were bottom of the league. So be twelve it,
1: points adrift at one point, something like that.
2: Yeah, twelve. Um, 12 eh? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it is mm-hmm. a genuinely incredible recovery, really, from where we were. Yeah.
2: And of course, the other side of that coin was Hereford at Christmas were fourth in the league. They were fourth in the league. Oh. They, the only time they ever finished bottom, well, they were bottom going into the last game because they were level on points with us and they had a worse goal difference. Um, but that the only time they were ever bottom was on the 45th game of the season.
1: Whereas we'd been botching, bottom- isn't that why we had a lot of tickets to that last game? Because they they were, even then they were mid-table when tickets went on sale, so they gave us like two and a half, three thousand tickets out of like nine thousand 000- Oh more. We we oh. had three, I think we had over yeah. three and a half thousand.
2: I think. But they didn't them think them. that would be a, a big game for them. They just thought it would be a yeah. Big- that's that's yeah. exactly right, Peter. Mm-hmm. I think they. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, they then tried to, um, you know, get to the league. And, uh, you know, appealed to the league that Brighton should have been deducted points for their crowd behaviour and all that. And I suppose the only thing I can say about the league helping us was that they didn't impose. I mean, if they're going to impose points, but by that time, they realised that the Brighton fan, Brighton fans uh, behaviour was being driven by this complete. Uh, inability to see anything being done to help their club being saved. You know, the, the author- football authorities were just clueless. Um, but I think they realised that, you know, if we, if we hit them with, you know, eight point penalty or whatever, that's just going to drive, you know, the final nail in the coffin. Um, when the media, we, we got the media on our side you know, once I got involved and we started putting the case of why were the club is in this position and a lot of it I was doing because I was trying to teach the football league what they should have been doing. There was a guy, a club, the football secretary, the football league secretary at that time um did not do us any favours. He was the guy who was kind of in charge of the league. You know, he didn't do us any favours. He... Was an old, old fashioned authoritarian sort of guy, um, you know, like a local magistrate who he played it by the book to the point where the book was, you know, it was dust covered, but it was still the book and there was no, no, uh, you know humanity, no understanding applied to it it was, that's the rule, that's it you know Um, and that was, he was the one who imposed this performance bond they called it a performance bond what was it really was a relocation bond you don't come back to Brighton (laughs) (laughs) say goodbye to your half a million plus, when we got that money by the way um, when we got that money back, originally they only paid back the half a million, and I, I, I said, you know, to our finance Bob Pinnock, who was the financial director at that time, um, did we, you know, we've got the interest? No, they didn't pay it. We had to chase them for the interest, you know, because they just thought they could probably get away with keeping the interest. Anyway, we, they didn't. Oh. I can assure you, I bought us. That probably brought us, um, you know, uh, a good player. I can't remember. We had very, many good players at that time. (laughs) Jeff Minton was a very good player, you know, when I took over. He was a good player. Yeah,
1: Yeah, he was good. Um, And then we started, I think the second season, that we started getting a few of the one or two players come in. Like Gary Hart came in that second season at Gillingham, didn't he? And he... Obviously, did pretty well for us over the years. Well,
2: that was, you know, that was when I got Brian Horton into the club. And, uh, you know, motivated by Brian, who was a club hero, as you know. um, That was a great help in in getting players, you know. But Hmm. the story of Gary Hart signing was lovely because you remember a guy called Jeff Wood? Yeah. Yeah. he was he was uh, for a while when uh, you know when I had to sack Steve Grid, uh Jeff stood in as a caretaker manager and he did all right for a while N- not that I was going to make him the manager of all time uh, I was after Horton, because I wanted a figure I wanted someone that meant something to the uh, you know to the fans of the album and anyway I, I persuaded Brian to join us and he um uh, Jeff Wood was his assistant, became his assistant. So one day I get this letter from this guy in Essex saying there's a young lad playing in the Essex Sunday League, you know, for Stansted Airport, um, called Gary Hart. And, you know, I've, I've written to a couple of, you know, leaked Colchester, I think, and Lake Norry, but they don't seem to be interested. Um, I, my family, or my mum came from Brighton, so I'm writing to you, Mister Knight. Right? You should go and watch this boy. Have this boy looked? You know, this he's playing centre forward for Stansted Airport. You know, um, so I gave this letter to uh, to uh, Brian, and I said, Brian, get. Because Jeff lives in Essex, and I think he actually played in this league, this Sunday league. He was a goalkeeper, Jeff, for Charlton. And, and he still played, you know, at that level. I said, get Jeff to look at this guy, you know, this, this Gary Hart. And, um, so, okay, Mr. Chairman, I'll do that. So a month went by. Not that it was the only thing I was thinking. All of a sudden it came to my mind when I was having a meeting with Brian. Whatever happened to that, you know, that boy? Did, did Jeff ever go to see, did he go and see him? He said, well, no, oh, uh, he said, no, he's been doing decorating at his house, So he hasn't been playing. <laughs> I said, well, tell Jeff to get his ass down to Stanstead or wherever they're playing to have a look at, because this, this guy had written to me, you know, saying, I've not heard a reply from you. So, you know, I was, I was so embarrassed. So, so anyway, so Jeff goes to sit Monday morning. Brian rings me up. He said, that lad at Stansted, he said, I've invited him into the club for a trial. Jeff reckons him and he said, we're playing Arsenal reserves on Wednesday. I'm going to put him in. If he, if he comes through a practice match tomorrow, Tuesday, you know, five aside, he said, I'm putting him in as centre forward against Arsenal. Chance would have it. Steve Bald, Bald, you know, who was the Arsenal centre half was coming back from injury. He played in that game against Gary Hart, who scored two goals right, in the game. We drew 2-2, Gary scored both of the goals. But Brian rings me up. I, I couldn't get to see this game. Brian rings me up. He said, we, we've got to sign him, Mr. Chairman. I said, you bloody well have. If he scored two goals against ball, he's not going to come up against quality defenders like that every game. <laughs> um, so in the end, we signed him for a set of for a, for a set of playing. And, and the sell-on... Of, you know, like 10% if we ever sold him for anything. We never paid anything for Gary. But because he was, you know, and he came in and he never wanted to play centre forward at all. You know, um but he, you know, he, he was a wonderful guy for giving it, giving it everything he could. You know, that's why the fans liked him, wasn't it? You know, he, and was, it's amazing to think that he ended up playing quite a lot in the championship for us. You know, yeah. from that beginning. What a story. Well, he, he always gave his, of his best and fans like that. They like a player who tries his hardest. And he had, Peter, you're right. He had a season quite near the end of his career when we were in the championship. I mean, we were in the championship a few seasons when I was chairman and we played, we were, you know, punching way above our weight yeah. in that because we had a budget, playing budget, that was so much smaller than every other club in that league. But Gary had a wonderful season playing. Could Mickey never wanted to play him as a centre forward. He knew he was could be a wide right, you know, sort of Jimmy Case sort of player, up and down the right side, working hard, getting crosses in, defending. He was excellent, Gary, at doing that. And, you know, but I still, I'm proud to say I still had him on a goal bonus. And every now and then he scored and he got paid a goal bonus. Even once he scored at Bristol Rovers when he was playing at right back and he scored, you know, he got down the wing, crossed it, and somehow or other it went in the net, you know, it came over and it sailed in the net. And he was like, <laughs> you know, so he, I never took this goal bonus away from him. You know, though he had it when he first came because he was supposed to be a centre forward. Um, but you know, it was lovely. He gave great service to the Albion, Gary. Yeah. He was yeah. a really, good, a real he, he was a huge part of that, that first team
1: that the Wivdeen team that was built by Mickey the first two seasons at Wivdeen when we kind of it took us from what League Two and the to the Championship, effectively, you know, kind of with yeah. like the like and Watson and then obviously Bobby joining the second season. I mean, I was like, that, having never had any success watching Albion ever, that was, was my. But
0: he, he was sort because... of like the watermark. Obviously, surviving Hereford in one sense was a was the key kind of mm. split between the past and the modern era. But in in a footballing sense, sort of Gary Hart pretty much was synonymous with and kind of inhabited that whole essence of the turning on the pitch. I think he was one of those players, those intermediary era players who. Started to make us look upwards finally yeah. at, at last. Because, yeah.
2: because he, um, because he tried so hard. And yeah. He, yeah. You know, people love that. They, they saw he gave in every game, Gary. And in that first season, in a very poor team, he scored 12 goals, which takes a bit of doing. Um, you know, and, but he, he never really wanted to play centre forward. He was a you know. He wanted to play wide, and Mickey wanted to do that. And of course, you know, the story of signing Zamora is, you know, I'm sure people have heard it all before, so I won't won't go into it. But it was basically, you know, Gary personified a change in attitude on the field, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of and, which Brian Horton instilled into the club. He he got the team playing in a certain way. Uh, he lifted the spirits of the players. He made, you know, we brought in players, you know, like the left winger who the fans called, um, oh, what was his name? Little black guy. Very fast. Um, Rod Thomas. Um, yeah, Thomas. Thomas. Rod Thomas, yeah. Yeah, Rod Thomas, who I, I was really pleased that we signed him from Shrewsbury, I think it was. And he had a couple of good seasons for us. So Brian brought a, the best out of the player life, you know, because he was experienced. He knew the game inside right out. He'd been manager. He wasn't just a player. He, he'd been a high level manager. Um, and he brought the best out of people like Uh, you know, Minton started playing much better than he had and then he left at the end of under, under Horton. But you know the team. I mean, I remember we 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 won five away games on the trot actually. You know, which is amazing. I did a video called Horton's Heroes. You know, and it was it was about these five away games. We won five games away games on the spin. And so me ever looking, you know, me was looking for an opportunity to raise some money, issued this video called Horton's Heroes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was all about those five away games. And Rod, you know, luckily by that time, I'd made sure we filmed every game, you know, uh, because of, even when I took over, it wasn't mandatory, you know, for all the, especially when you're in League Two. Uh, but I wanted to have a record of it, you know, apart from anything else, for the uh, for the managers to analyse, um, but it was, it was a, a turning point for the club. And then coming back from Gillingham to Wigdeen, you know, of course was a huge step in the right direction. I mean, it was a, it was kind of almost obvious that it would boost the club's morale because there we'd been playing in this, you know, place that dare not speak its name. In in Kent that's what that's what John Bain called it you know <laughs> he was right um, and you know we were we 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 got publicity because of how we'd saved ourselves you know, and because I came in and I was an Albion fan and you know that was unusual in a way because I made it quite clear that I'd stood on the terraces I wasn't I wasn't some you know sort of highfalutin guy who is going to uh, institute this special, you know, club for high quality diners. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Well, we get to the, you know, upper echelons of the game. Right now, we're going to have all the fans working together. We're going to have hospitality where all the fans mix together. David Dean, you know, who ran Arsenal at that time, you know, came to look at what we did at Wembley, and it affected how they did the lounges in the in the Emirates Stadium, because yeah. yeah, because we I I got to know David very well, and we because we had to have it open plan because it you know there wasn't enough room, and he liked the way our fans because he came to a few games, uh, and and we had one or two players from Arsenal alone, if you remember. Um, and so he saw the way this worked and, you know, they originally, their architects were going to have a whole series of small, you know, uh, isolated, you know, boxes, dining, bo- you know, hospitality boxes. Yeah. But he made, they made large areas at that level at the Emirates open plan. You know, because of what we believe it or not, what we were doing it Whitney. It <laughs> believe it—you <laughs> uh, know, turning everything on its head, sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well, oh God, uh, it's is it half past nine?
0: Yes, I'm I just saying as we we're talking, we was, um times ticked on, so we we should probably wrap up this this episode here, because I think there's plenty more to talk about. But um, really, it's the, the bulk of the Whitney doing is the fight for the Amex, and obviously, what you think of the modern incarnation of the. Uh, of the team as well. Um, plenty of stuff to talk about there. So I think that's really for another episode, which we could do another time if, you, if you've got to go. Um,
2: I'm sorry. Yeah, taking... I'm, I'm sorry. that I'm sorry I <laughs> couldn't leave when I just looked at it, <laughs> That it's 9.28. No, it's time flies. you so done. good.
1: Someone has been, it's been, been
2: rabbiting good. on. Someone has been <laughs> rabbiting on. You you need <laughs> to edit that down, obviously. You know, going <laughs> you, if you <laughs> to have a ma- massive
0: editing job, well, I don't know about editing out, but definitely maybe segmenting. We might have to segment it, but, uh, <laughs> it's been absolutely brilliant yeah, chatting actually. It's been it really, really so good. So me. much, so much interesting information. and um, right. certain bits and pieces people might know before, but it's nice to hear again. And there's lots of other stuff that, um, that people wouldn't have known and um, particularly about your sort of supporting backgrounds. I don't think so many people know about that, but, um, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Well, my um, we- supporting background. Your supporting background. Supporting. I don't know your sporting background. Is that yeah. a
2: thing as well, maybe? And <laughs> yeah, no, say. well. Um, <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> I was the Trevor Brooking of my time. Um, no, not Trevor Brooking, because I was a bit before Trevor Brooking. I was the Wolf Mannion of my time. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a player called Wolf Mannion? I've
0: heard heard the name, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm trying to yeah. place
2: where... He played for England and Middlesbrough. Um yeah. Uh, he was uh I was a number ten uh you know and uh but never played at professional level, but I used to enjoy you know opening defenses up with cross field splitting passes <laughs>
0: <laughs> brilliant lovely well you should be demonstrating this at the Amex one day, I think on the pitch half time dick i think definitely. <laughs>
2: They'll have to wheel me on. They'll have to wheel <laughs> me on, and then I'll wheel me off. I would imagine after that. <laughs>
0: yeah, you might have to score with your head then. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, but and brilliant! It's big
2: so, enough. <laughs> My head is big enough. So.
0: <laughs> well, you, I'm used to that. I'm, I'm not. I'm not agreeing with that one. I'm not getting into trouble. <laughs> but no, I mean, Dick, it's been absolutely brilliant. It's fascinating to chat to you, and we'd love to get you back on. For another episode, I think, which we could do sooner or later, whatever you like. Where well, we'll, we'll, you, we'll know, you, those other... you
2: yeah, you tell me when you want to do it, and I'll I'll make sure I'm around. Uh, re- sure, I'm okay. You know, right. I'm um, I'm always available to do things like this because I think it's important that the the history of the club is properly recorded. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. In the inside.
0: He's frozen now. <laughs> frozen. Sorry, you froze he from froze it. minute. again. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Well, it, didn't, yeah. it
2: didn't... Did it? Have, you, no, have we it... frozen? No, we're okay now. Yeah, we're all right now. Yeah, yeah. but it, when I was talking, it wasn't going down then, was it?
0: Mm. Just at the last bit. You, you said... Um, what was it at the end there, Peter? Just the... I can't remember which bit... He cut off on now but uh, yeah but anyway it's um I mean it is important to catalogue the history of the club and my the essence of this podcast is amongst other things is to get as many different voices on the air including loads of extraordinary Albion fans so to speak um and to, to have their stories but obviously your story amongst the Albion fans given your prowess and your position within the club is of huge importance and I think it's really important for as many stories to get out there really and, yeah. for, and for especially
1: as the years go come- as so you get further away from these days as well, as we move further away from the Amsterdam yeah. and from Gillingham, and you get more and more new fans coming in who maybe don't know the history, that it's it gets more and more important, I think, to kind of hear all this stuff, to talk about all this stuff again and remind ourselves where we've come from as a club.
2: Absolutely. Peter, yeah. yeah. so, you're absolutely right, because it is so quick that it's happened, really. You know, when you think it was 20 years from bottom of the league to the Premiership, well, it was less than 20 years, but to get, you know, this year is really, we've really started kind of more than putting our, you know, clinging on in the Premiership. We're getting a toehold in the Premiership now. And we should really, you know, we should become an Everton, uh, in terms of being in the Premier League for the next 20, 30 years.
1: Hopefully not an Everton tonight though, because they're 3-1 down at Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> Are they right? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, there you go. The um, I think yeah, I, I get your I, point. I, yeah, make ourselves a, a long-term Premier League club, but yeah, it's easy, and it is easy. I think a lot of people do forget, you know, where we've come from and what's happened. So we need to, you know, remind it.
2: It's a what good, is lovely? Reminder. What is lovely from my point of view is so many people like come up to me in the street with. Um, with their, a kid, you know, a small kid, and the guy who's your sort of age, you you guys' age, will say, you know, to the kid, this is the man, you know, they're telling their kids that that I'm the one who saved the club, you know, or this is the man, we wouldn't be able to go to the Amex if it wasn't for him, and these kids are learning it, you know, and they're interesting. They're being taught it by their dads, which is interesting. When it comes down to it in football... At that level, money comes into it, you know. Yeah. And what was good, from my point of view, what was, you know, (laughs) fortunate was that I was able to connect with the fans in a way that maybe very few chairmen have done before, you know, and so we were all working together. You know, there wasn't them and us. It was, you know, it was we were working together. We were all on exactly the same side. They could see that the leader of the club, was not thinking the way they did about it. You know, I think that has been an invaluable, um, lesson for people who live through that because they can see, you know, where clubs are going wrong. You know, some clubs are so badly run. Our club is very well run. Our club now, it's a bit, it's a bit corporate for me. It's a bit too corporate, but it is well run. And the reason it's well run is because I put it on the right track in terms of building. I mean, I built a very big business. You know, I knew how to build a business, and I brought a lot of my business acumen to the Albion. But the heart was there first. You know, my heart was there, and that was why it was such a passionate mm. thing for me. You know, uh, because I, I, it was, it was my life. You know, it was, it was fundamental mm. to my life. So. Yeah. You're fortunate if you're in that situation. Anyway, I'm going to love you and leave you guys. Yes, yeah. Well. uh, Thanks thanks so much again,
1: Dave. You've been brilliant. It's been so good having you on. Thank you, Peter.
0: And we'll do it again soon to pick up the second half of this story uh, in chronological terms, and um, maybe maybe some more anecdotes besides. And we'll catch up with you again soon. So thank you very much for joining us. And we'll wrap up in the usual way, Peter, by saying, stand or fall.
1: at the Albion.
2: Oh, hang on. No, hang on. You want me to do it now? Sorry. Yeah, go on. <laughs> Peter, you say what you Let's say. do it all first. again.
0: All right, so, stand all fall.
1: Up the Albion. See
2: goals. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about
1: anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the Bride and Groom?